Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Mark Zuckerberg always knew. This is how Jono Sarah starts his column on Facebook, which he says only has itself to blame for a drastic remedy which might be in the works on the part of AGs all around the country. Let's bring in Jono Sarah now for our Bloomberg Opinion piece of the day. Joe, obviously a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering business. So, Joe, what did Mark Zuckerberg always know? Uh, hi, Bonnie. He, he always knew that these companies that he was buying and telling the government it was just a little a little purchase were were in fact companies that he could see might one day prove to be a serious competitor and he was cutting off competition with these purchases even though it was 2012 in the case of Instagram and 2014 in the case of WhatsApp if it was going to become such a problem you know that AGs around the country want something done about it why didn't regulators stop those purchases at the time well, to be honest, I don't think regulators, I think, I think Mark Zuckerberg was a lot more foresighted about this sort of thing than the regulators were. So, uh, for instance, you know, one of the reasons they let Instagram go through was because Instagram had no revenue. So the thought was, well, if Instagram has no revenue, then they're really not expanding market, uh, their market share uh, by buying Instagram. Um, you know, and, uh, the other thing is that at the time there were other photo apps. So the idea was, well, you buy Instagram, you know, there's still companies like uh, Camera, I think it was called Camera Anywhere or something like that. Camera uh, Awesome. Course, no, yes, Camera Awesome, which no longer exists, of course. So, um, so I think the regulators were, you know, honestly, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook were completely straight with the regulators about their rationale for buying these companies. And second of all, I don't think the regulators were foresighted enough to see the potential uh, harm down the road. So what's your outlook for what happens with the FTC and these 48 attorneys general dual antitrust suits now to undo both the merger of Facebook and Instagram as well as the takeover of WhatsApp? Does it succeed eventually? It's really hard to know because, um, you know, if this goes to court, you know, it's going to be a couple of years before there's a trial. That's, that's, that's point number one. Um, and, and who knows, uh, you know, how, you know, Facebook will no doubt try to settle in some way that does not uh, uh, force them to give up uh, Instagram and WhatsApp. Um, and, you know, like if you take the Microsoft case as an example, yes, the district court judge in that case ordered that Microsoft be broken up into two parts, but that was eventually uh, overruled by the, uh, by the appeals court. And, and although Microsoft wound up being sanctioned, they wound up, uh, remaining the same company that they once were. So th- th- it's, it's way too early to think that it's either going to be broken up or it's not going to be broken up. It's just, there's, no, there's just no way to know. Is it bad for corporate America that Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp are all one big company now? I certainly think it's, it's bad for consumers. Mm. Um, I mean, the the... the, the the main issue is that there's no competition in the social media space. There's just none. So if you don't like Facebook's privacy policy, where are you going to go? You go to Instagram, you're still in Facebook. 
If you go to WhatsApp, you're still in Facebook. Well, you could close your browser and open a book. <laughs> well, you could, you could, you could. But who does that in, the, in this world that we live in? I mean, but that's um, sort of the problem, isn't it? Isn't it, uh, Joe? People have really embraced social media as a way of connecting, and it's it's almost like they can't do without it. The, all of these studies on addiction and so on, they really sort of hit the point. People have now got so used to Messenger and you know posting updates on Facebook that it's almost like the the, the phone was. It's become a utility. Well, I, I agree with you. I, I agree with you about that. Um, uh, but I would say. Uh, uh, turning Facebook into a utility is uh, is even is more than even the Justice Department can handle. Mm-hmm. Even the FTC can handle at this point. But but look, if you had, I mean, to, to if you had um, Instagram and WhatsApp as separate entities from Facebook, they could compete on the basis of privacy. They could compete on the basis of how are you going to use your data. They could compete on the basis of what kind of ads will we put in front of you or what kind of disinformation, will we have disinformation or will we not have disinformation? You know, you can have that kind of competition. Um, and, and, and I think that's really what the, the 48 AGs and the, and the, uh, and the FTC are, are trying to accomplish. Is there time, I mean, is it too late, I should say, for this to succeed in the sense that, you know, even WhatsApp's founder left because of how, you know, the, the WhatsApp was turning into under a fa- the Facebook banner. Is, is the train gone so long from the station that it's going to be hard to bring it back? Um, well, you know, Facebook has not really integrated those two apps uh, you know, um, intertwined it with Facebook. So they, you know, breaking it up would actually be, in those terms, relatively simple. The question is who would run those companies? And, you know, we're getting way ahead of ourselves, but my, my, my strong guess is that uh, the government would not allow some Facebook executive to, to go over to Instagram and they, they'd have to f- undoubtedly find new leadership. Um, and so I don't think it's, it's I really don't think it's too late in that sense. In a, in a legal sense, that's a different question. And uh, the problem there is that the courts over the last two or three decades has become very tolerant of mergers and has used a very a standard called the consumer welfare standard to decide uh, if a merger is OK or not. That really um, makes it almost impossible to put a glove on uh, the big tech companies. So. That has to change over the course of the next few years in order for Facebook to be broken up. Will it help, Joe? Will it help these AGs and the FTC that, you know, many, many early workers in Silicon Valley that totally believed in in the project, let's say, of connecting the world have now turned against Silicon Valley for the reason, you know, that it, it, it did become sort of the monster that everybody uh, got eaten up by. Will it help that, that, that so many of those employees have, have now turned against Facebook? Absolutely, um, because let's face it, those people are the ones you would want on the witness stand. Um, also, more importantly, almost as, just as importantly, is the fact that both Republicans and Democrats in Congress uh, really uh, are, are become anti-big tech. So anti-Facebook, anti-Amazon, anti-Google. Uh, anti 
And so uh, there's a decent possibility that legislation of some sort will pass, antitrust legislation will pass in the next Congress, not this one, but in the next Congress, that could well um, put strictures on these companies and make it easier to break them up. Joe, we will watch this with absolute uh, interest, but it's going to be years, as we heard earlier from Dave Wilson. So, Joe, we expect that you'll be following it as well and keeping us up to date with your Bloomberg opinion columns out really all week on the Bloomberg. Uh, please do follow Joe Nocera for all of his wonderful columns. That's Joe Nocera, Bloomberg opinion columnist, joining us. And his latest column, Facebook, has only itself to blame for drastic remedy. And our thanks to Emily Chang for bringing us that wonderful interview with uh, newly minted billionaire Brian Chesky, his golden retriever. Sir Richard Parker, I'm sure, will also benefit from this IPO. As we said, we are waiting for the first trade. Emily brought uh, the news of where it was being priced to Brian. And I can tell you, because I saw the screen, his eyebrows raised when she said 139. That's, of course, now moved up even higher to 150. And we haven't even had a first trade yet so it's not done yet we're off to the races let's bring in Mandeep Singh for a little bit of uh, intelligence here Mandeep is senior tech industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and has been listening to that interview as well ABNB the IPO priced at $68 we're looking at more than double that now and uh, Emily put that to Brian Chesky and he was extremely surprised are there dangers here Mandeep that it's going to be uh, overpriced I think so, especially, you know, when you look at a valuation of about 15 to 20 times sales for a new IPO and a mature company like Airbnb. Airbnb is not a startup or, you know, an early stage company like Snowflake was, you know, a couple of months back. So this is a company that will likely have $5 billion in revenue next year. And for any, you know, high growth company, the most important thing investors care about is growth. So, uh, you know, we are still coming out of the pandemic. And yes, there will be a vaccine-driven recovery next year. But beyond that, I'm not so sure Airbnb can keep growing at 30 40% top line every year. And that's the risk when uh, the market values at 15 to 20 times sales. Uh, the valuations can be cut into half the moment, uh, you know, there is a doubt that the growth is going to decelerate. Mandeep, he came out and said that in April, when they got debt financing, the price they got then would have priced them at 30 bucks a share. Now, April was obviously a very different time. We were just into the pandemic and it was the worst of the pandemic. But that's a huge difference. $30 a share. It shows you how just sentiment can change. Absolutely. And, you know, they had to go to Silver Lake and Six Streets. Really, these guys are the veterans, you know, when it comes to uh, these private equity investments. So at that point of time, Airbnb was going through a cash burn issue. He mentioned about cancellations. Cancellations were at its peak at that time, and they really had to raise cash. So the market sentiment has shifted completely since then. And uh, look, uh, other sectors in tech have also done well. We have seen a lot of software IPOs do really well. The biggest concern I have with Airbnb is online travel is a saturated or somewhat of, you know, a highly penetrated market when it comes to uh, shift to online. You look at food delivery, food delivery is still in the very early stages of, you know, shifting to online. But in, in case of uh, Airbnb, it's a consolidated market. You've got three big players, Booking, Expedia, Airbnb. 
I think what Airbnb has to show is really good execution, probably take share from Expedia for it to keep justifying this kind of valuation. And he did mention that they have brought back Airbnb experiences and they are looking at opportunities in other sort of dimensions. Certain opportunities are perishable, was the word he used. Certain are not. And we'll look at those down the road. So presumably experiences is not a perishable uh, opportunity for them and so they brought that back uh, but they had to to let some of that go now he also mentioned that they took 250 million dollars from the balance sheet to give it to their hosts at the beginning of the pandemic it was a very very difficult time there is danger here that they're going to have to keep tapping that balance sheet every time there's a hiccup right bandeep well so uh, airbnb again is a gig economy company and with uh, the gig economy companies, you know, when you don't have uh, all these people who are uh, kind of working for you, but they are not employees, you have to keep, uh, you know, using incentives. It's the same with Uber having to use driver incentives. It's the same with DoorDash having to use incentives for the careers and Airbnb has to keep doing things, which is why we think the cost of doing business for the gig economy companies is higher than the traditional, you know, OTAs like Booking and Expedia. So that will weigh on on the cost side uh, for the near to medium term. He said people want things to be intimate and private now. He was explaining why he thinks Airbnb has a leg up on just the general hotel room. He also said that for business travel, you know, people don't need to check in at an airport at midnight to have an 8 a.m. meeting anymore. And he thinks that that will also help Airbnb's business. I mean, they're reasonable expectations, but are they scientific? Well, so, uh, look, the last time we had a crisis, financial crisis, Airbnb started back then. Now we had sort of a, you know, a six-month crisis. Uh, Things will change. Uh, I'm sure, you know, coming out of this pandemic, consumer behavior will change. Now, Airbnb will uh, be able to, you know, benefit from that change. But chances are there will be another startup somewhere who is also trying to, you know, do things uh, to leverage the change in habits. And and so uh, I, I think I treat Airbnb as a mature company. And uh, granted, they have created this category, alternative accommodations. But uh, I, I, it's not said that they can keep, you know, growing their top line. They have to find new categories for growth. And uh, there's a still a lot to execute upon. All right, Mandeep, thank you. Mandeep will get back now to his Bloomberg to watch that ABNB ticker to see when the first trade trades. Mandeep Singh is Senior Tech Industry Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And of course, uh, giving us some context there around that Brian Chesky interview. Brian, very adept at giving us his personal story, which of course always goes down well with uh, investors, particularly when you talk about your mom and dad being social workers and how you're going to celebrate with your golden retriever. Let's uh, bring in now somebody who's been watching with great interest the SCOTUS hearings, um, Fanny and Freddie. We're not going to get a decision from SCOTUS, obviously, until uh, the middle of next year. But Chris Whalen, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, has lots of thoughts on what should happen and what will happen. Chris, welcome. Oh, thank you, Vani. I hope you're well. Great, thank you. So talk to us a little bit about what we heard yesterday at the Supreme Court. It was happening as we were live on air, so we didn't get a chance to actually listen in on the oral arguments. But if you heard them, what were the oral arguments made? And if you didn't, what would have been made? Well, no, I I read the summaries. I didn't get a chance to actually listen to it. I probably will later. But essentially, the shareholders of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the Eurosat's 
private shareholders are arguing that the monies taken by the Treasury after the failure of these two entities should be returned. And they're basically saying, well, these are private companies. The receive or the excuse me, the conservatorship was wrongly uh, imposed upon us, and and you know we should basically get the companies back for nothing. Um, I take a different view, which is that the companies did in fact fail. Congress provided a framework for dealing with this, and the Treasury required them when they were taken over to pay the taxpayer for the wrap for the securities that they issue. In other words, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac mortgage bonds are AAA rated because the government of the United States stands behind them. The government of the United States also stands behind the two corporate entities, the companies that the uh, plaintiffs in the Supreme Court action are trying to get control of again. And as you know, during the Bush administration, there was a lot of talk and a lot of action about getting Fannie and Freddie out of government control. So here we are, and essentially the plaintiffs are asking the Supreme Court to step in between Congress and the executive branch and essentially overturn the decisions made by Treasury with the authority of Congress and return the monies to private shareholders. I don't think that's going to happen. So, and I've, I've felt that way since day one. Uh, Judge Lamberth, many years ago, came out with a decision. It basically said, Vonnie, I'm sorry, I can't do anything for you. Go up to Capitol Hill. Mm. And he said, this is a political problem. And he's right, because when Congress creates something, they created Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and then they subsequently sold shares to the public. Okay? You end up with this hybrid. It's neither public nor private. Yeah. But the one thing that you can very clearly see is that these are not independent entities. They're federally chartered, and all of the indicia of control that you would use, say, in a bank uh, situation or any company, if you're trying to decide who's in control, the government's still in control. They regulate them, they appoint the officers or review you know, the appointment of officers and directors. They have a lot of public policy control over them. Well, so in that a, case, it's a mess. Yeah, exactly. And in that case, then, sort of the, the, the power switches back to Mark Calabria in some ways. He's the uh, FHFA yeah. head. Will he keep his job through the next administration? And, and what will he do? That's unclear. Yeah. We have to find out. And again, this is in front of the courts. If the president has the power to remove him for any reason. Remember, they litigated over this, and they also litigated over the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau because it was a unitary, uh, single director uh, kind of a design for the agency. Yes. And so what happened was the courts ultimately said, no, the president can remove, uh, at the time this was Richard Cordray, uh, anytime he wants, because to prevent the president from exercising that authority, they judged to be unconstitutional. So my guess is, is that the Biden administration is going to find some way, one way or another, once the courts have ruled to remove Mr. Calabria, because he is so far out of step with both the industry and with what we need today. Uh, I, I think he's going to have a fairly short half-life. Uh, what does Biden it mean for the off. mortgage industry in the United States, Chris? Where do you see it headed? Oh, next year is going to be another boom year. Yeah. Uh, profit margins will be less because competition for those loans is intensifying. But, you know, I'm in the process of buying a house right now. I got pre-approved in a day. 
Well, uh, you're though. You're special, Chris. No, I'm not special. I'm telling you, that, and this was a non-bank. I won't mention their name, but the non-banks are so much more efficient than the commercial banks. It's frightening. I got an appointment with Bank America a, a week later, and I got pre-approved by a non-bank next day. In yeah. fact, I had two. So, <laughs> are there any dangers in the system left? Yes. If volumes slow down, then the, uh, the forbearance that Congress gave borrowers is going to become a problem because Congress didn't pay for cleaning up the mess. They left it with the private sector, and that's unfair. Uh, the Congress is going to have to go back pretty quickly in January, February, and provide some kind of support for the industry to clean up all of the forgiveness and the forbearance that was provided for in the CARES Act. And it wasn't just consumer residential mortgage loans, Bonnie. This was business loans, too. Mm. You had a lot of states impose moratoria on private lending, auto loans, all of these things. Well, who's paying for that? The note holders and the investors and, and the companies that issue these, uh, these loans. So we have a, a kind of a troubling situation because if we mess up the private bond market, this economy has got big problems. The reason the U.S. recovered so well during this mess with COVID is because we still have a private marketplace. Chris, it's always just fascinating to speak with you. Chris Whalen, of course, author of several books as well, most recently Ford Men. Do look him up on uh, Amazon.com or your nearest uh, bookstore dealer. Talking to Chris there about uh, Fanny Freddie, of course, not going to get any resolution on that anytime soon, that's for sure. All right, it is time now to talk packaged foods. When is it not time to talk packaged foods? Let's bring in Xavier Unkovic, who is CEO of Amy's Kitchen. Xavier, first give us you know, the, the overview of what happened to you from the beginning of the pandemic to now. Did you see a surge or did people just stay away completely from stores and you know, therefore uh, hurting your sales? No. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon. Thank you for welcoming me. Uh, yes, definitely. We've seen a significant surge. And we were, as a company, delighted to help those consumers in needs. But the, uh, the uh, pandemic peak has been significant for our business from a uh, 50% growth in sales for our frozen, a minimum of 50% for our frozen foods, to a, a maximum of 160% growth in sales during the peak of the pandemic for our soups. You know, um, um, and we were, we were um, you know, definitely challenged to those uh, orders by our customers and consumers. But happy also to mobilize to help the consumers to feel better, eating better, and and healthier as well. Yeah, and uh, you know, we all know the Amy's Kitchen packaged foods from our local Dwayne Reed or CVS or what have you. You're really everywhere and there are 250 varieties of of your packaged mm-hmm. foods and you're also in 30 countries. I have to ask, are the SPACs circling? Listen, we're, we're a proudly independent family-owned business. Sure. I think this is, this is something that we're super delighted to be when it comes to uh, the nature of our company. And at the moment of time, yes, our family founders have been massively contacted in the past today, but they're very much willing to stay, remain independent and, and family owned as a business. And there's, there's a value to this because it allows us to think and act long term and do the right thing according to our purpose and our values. And, and we're delighted today to be in a position where we can, we can grow and develop uh, from within. And, uh, and having a great team and great uh, employees at Amy's that are very much supporting our growth agenda 
and and helping the world to be in a better place uh, in in a, in a way. Sure, but is it not tempting to take some of the, the, the capital or some of the ideas so that you could scale up even further? I mean, you're doing a pretty good job of scaling already, you know, if you're in 30 yeah. other countries around the world. But, uh, you know, a capital infusion like that or an IPO, is it not at all tempting? It is always tempting, yeah, but uh, you, you, you also have to reflect about what's your long-term strategy as a company and, and what the owners of your company want to do. And for us, we're delighted to say that our owners are very much looking to stay the course and be independent and, and help us to or challenge the business and the ones that are running the business to find our ability to stay and remain free by performing better. And this is what we've done for the last years uh, as, a, as a leadership team and me as a CEO, having the, uh, the objective of driving financial freedom so we can reinvest and we're not tempted uh, by uh, looking outside of our, our, um, our founders yes. uh, and, 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 and existing capital. Xavier, yeah. talk to us about competition between you guys and the likes of, say, Birdseye or Findus or some of these others. How do you, uh, Weight Watchers, I mean, there are so many out there, and yet it is pretty easy to spot the Amy's packaged foods in your in your local grocery. You've got a you know very definite look, and it's a, it's a niche product. But how are you keeping your moat around your business? So first and foremost, as you, as you just said, we're the only family-owned business. Uh, we're also the only business that is proposing to consumers um, organic, sustainably sourced ingredients that are making our meals, uh, that we cook every day in our kitchens. And, and the way we make our food, the way we source our ingredients is quite unique. So the way we position ourselves in the marketplace is not so much looking at our competition and trying to gain share. We're very much, and that's the discussion we have with all the customers that we do business with, uh, the Whole Foods of the world, uh, our independent natural uh, stores, but also Walmart and also Target. We look at, at Amy's helping those customers to grow the category we're in. So to grow the entree category, to grow the soup categories. So we, we keep saying we're not here to gain share uh, uh, on top of our competitors. We're here to bring new consumers to the marketplace and grow the categories, grow the frozen category, grow the soup category. So for us, for many, many years, when the soup uh, can category was down, Amy's was growing. When the frozen category were down, Amy's was growing and helping those customers to grow and to develop their sales. So it was a very mutual relationship. Uh, by helping having consumers being exposed to better food for them and better food for the planet. Xavier, we're pretty much out of time, but I have to ask you what was the best selling item through the pandemic and and what your favorite is too. (laughs) My favorite (laughs) is is the the risotto. Uh, I cannot leave without a beautiful risotto with with the smell of those mushrooms being cooked uh, in a a nice stew. And the best seller? uh, it's not the best seller. It's not the best seller. Which right? was? It depends, on where we, it depends on where we are. So if you think about pizza or vegan margarita pizza, it's our best seller. But it all depends on the channel we operate. Sure. And we're happy to say, and this is why we're somewhat everywhere, yep. but also very customized for our customers. Well, you're making us hungry now, Xavier. So thank you for that. Xavier Unkovic is the CEO of Amy's Kitchen, and we thank him for joining. Mm-hmm.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.